We can turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We're continuing our study through the book of Romans. We just started this a couple weeks ago. I'm sure you're all ready for the big game this afternoon. Or big games, I should say. But uh, just to let you know, after the service at uh, 1.15, we will be having our service over at Woodside Terrace. And for those who might be interested in helping out with that, we'll have our communion time together with uh, the older folks over there. And uh, usually just lasts for about a half hour. So if you're interested in coming to that, let me know after the service. And and, uh, you're welcome to come along. As we turn to the book of Romans, uh, I'm reminded of what the late great uh, British preacher said, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he opened up a sermon on Paul uh, out of the book of Romans with the phrase, the gospel of God. And he went on and he was stating his fear that a lot of times we become as Christians so familiar with certain words in the church such as the word gospel. Or we become so academic in our approach to them that um, it doesn't really move us anymore. We just kind of throw the word out there like any other word. And um, we have to be reminded that what we're going to look at this morning, God's great gospel, and we're going to look at basically uh, what it says in the first four verses of Romans. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 But we're going to get through verse 4 today. I hope that God uses these verses, this message today in your life so that when you leave here today that you're going to be deeper in love with Him than you were when you came in. Um, The gospel of God basically is the theme of Romans, the whole book. And Paul describes it here for us in the first several verses. When you look at verses 1 through 7, it's kind of a hard text to really sit down and to to diagram out because it's one long and difficult sentence. And it it seems that it's very difficult to really uh, find your way through that in the original language. And in verse 1, Paul begins by identifying himself, and then he describes what he calls the gospel or the good news of God in verses 2 through 4. That's what we're going to be looking at today. But then he explains how the gospel goes to the nations, not just to the Jews, but to the nations, to the Gentiles, through his apostleship in verses 5 and 6. And then in verse 7, he kind of closes out that section there, and he greets the saints in Rome. Now, we're just going to be looking at verses one or 2 through 4. Last week, we looked at verse 1. The last couple of weeks, we gave an introduction to the book of Romans. And we want to understand that as we come into this book and we understand the gospel or the good news of Christ, a lot of people don't understand what the good news is. They don't understand that God has allowed us to not only be saved from our depravity and sin, but he has also allowed us to have a relationship with him. 
Pascal said that in every man there's a God-shaped vacuum. And that's true. And you say, well, how do you know it's true? Just look at all the different religions that are out there. Everybody's trying to come up with some way to connect with their deity. Uh, I think God put in us as his creation a longing, a yearning to know him. And man's eternal soul is made in such a way that it doesn't really rest until that is complete. And you just look around the world and you see the different religious systems that people have invented. And the issue isn't really, beloved, whether man will worship, because men worship all the time. The question is, what will he worship? Who will he worship? Because man, in our own fallen, sinful, perverse nature, we reject the true God just by default. And when we reject the true God, the Bible says that we come up with forms of God in our own minds, in our own making, it says. But such little gods provide no help for us, especially when we find ourselves in the situation of the sinful depravity, the prison in which we are in. And that's the basic problem of any man is sinfulness. And we want to know how we can escape from that. If you get sick and you're diagnosed with a fatal disease, the first question is, was there any help? Is there any way that a doctor can prescribe something to make this go away? Beloved, we have to understand that man is imprisoned in their normal state. He's imprisoned in the clutches and the chains of sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not anybody in this room who could say, oh, you know what, I've never sinned. And if you did, you'd be lying, so that would be a sin. (laughs) It's impossible for us to escape that prison of sin because it's a prison of sin that's in the natural. And the natural, the Bible says, cannot enter into the supernatural. It's impossible. And so because we want out of this system of imprisonment, we try to find ways to wiggle out of it, wiggle out of the chains of sin, wiggle out of the prison of sin. And in a lot of religions, basically, what they would say is, you know, if you're just a good person, sooner or later you're going to discover God. And you just be good and you just do the good things in life. Do your little routines, your little rituals, whatever it is. And eventually, you'll meet God. I'm here to tell you, beloved, that no matter what we are led to believe by those outside of Christ, we can't simply transform ourselves into being good. And the reason I know that is because We've fallen into a trap of thinking that sin is something that we do. When you think of sin, don't you think of something, you think of a list of things, adultery, lying, stealing, that's what we think of. Just automatically, that's our default. And so we think somehow if we cannot do those things, 
then we'll be less sinful. (laughs) We'll be better in God's eyes. And we fall into the trap of thinking that somehow, if if we do all the right things in the right order and do everything good, then God will look down and say, okay, in spite of your sin, I'm going to love you because you're doing a good job. Someone once said that a lot of people believe that they have to do the dance to get the hug from God. If you don't do a dance, you don't get any hug. If you don't perform, God's not going to love you. And that's not true. Sin is not something we do, beloved. Sin is something that we are. That's what we are. Paul described it as being in his flesh. It's a disease. It's taken over our our systems, our bodies, our thoughts, our minds, our motivations, our intentions, everything. And I'm here to tell you that Christ is the only way that we can ever hope of getting out of that prison, those chains that, that, that bind us. See, the difference between Christianity and other world religions is basically this. Christianity acknowledges that man can't get out of his prison on his own. doesn't matter what you do. You can come to church 365 days a week. Now, that may help you understand the Bible more. That may help you fellowship with other people, but it's not going to help you have your sins forgiven just by coming to church or by praying or by reading the Bible or by doing anything. The good news, beloved, is that God has come down and invaded our prison. He's come down And he said, you know what? I don't want you to be imprisoned anymore. The good news of Christianity is that since God can't, or since man can't get out of this prison, God came into it. Have you ever gone to visit anybody in a prison or a jail? Not a very pleasant experience. You got to go through all kinds of security, and then finally when you meet the person, usually they're on the other side of a piece of glass. You got to talk to them through this gross little phone. (laughs) You don't have the freedom in a prison to just line up an interview with somebody and say, hey, come by and visit me. No, you're, you're restricted. They restrict who comes and sees you. They restrict the times. They restrict how long. They restrict what you're allowed to bring to that person, if anything. That's our condition. See, the good news is that that God came down to earth because the natural cannot enter into the supernatural, but the supernatural can condescend to the natural. That's what Jesus Christ did. That's the good news of the gospel. The fact that our God came down to us. He didn't say, hey, yeah, I'm sitting up here. Now you've got to figure out a way to get up here. That's what world religions do. World religions basically tell us, you know what, it's man's kind of understanding and kind of concluding and trying to figure out a way to get to God. And so they say, you know what, if you do this, 
Every religion has a couple little steps. If you do this, if you do that, one, two, three, four, then you're in good favor with God. And the Bible says no. There's no way we can have any favor with God outside of the way he prescribed. And that's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul speaks of here. Paul spoke of the good news of the gospel in various texts. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he says, According to the glorious gospel, or the glorious good news of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He felt God had committed the good news of the gospel to him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said, The ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace of God. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Down in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. This is good news. This is news that we should be excited about. This is news that should transform the way we live, the transform the way we communicate, transform the way we reached out to a lost and dying world. He uses different terms to emphasize different aspects of the gospel throughout Romans. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, The day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? He calls it my gospel. He possesses it. And the reason he possesses it is because he wants people to know that this good news of Christ came into his possession by faith. That it was his gospel to preach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I'm determined not to know anything among you when he's speaking to the Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, he says, I am made all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And why does he do it? He says right there, and this I do for the gospel's sake. See, we have to understand, God has come into our world to tell us what he himself is like. And to tell us how we can know him in a personal way. Jesus Christ is the most incredible person in all human history. The declaration of the good news has changed forever the landscape of the world in which we live. You don't have to look very hard to find whether it's philosophers or painters or poets, musicians, who have been impacted by the gospel of Christ and have created incredible pieces of artwork or or pieces of music or statues or poetry. And it's all for the glory of God because they've been affected by the gospel. We can honestly say that Jesus Christ has affected human history, and human society like no other human being who ever lived. And that's the good news. 
That's what we should be excited about. And what makes it good news, to be honest with you, is the fact that we don't deserve it. See, if we deserved it, then it'd be okay news. You know what I'm saying? But good news is when you don't deserve something. You know, it's when you're driving your car and you see the little flashing light. Right? You look down and you're going, oh man, I'm going too fast. And they hit the siren, you pull over, and the officer comes up. You know why I stopped you? License and registration, please. And you go through the whole deal. And at the end of the conversation, the officer looks at you and he goes... Slow down, sir. Have a good day. That's good news. (laughs) Right? That's good news. Now, I'm not saying because I get a lot of tickets or anything like that. I haven't had tickets in years, you know. But I'm just telling you that I've been through that situation. And there's nothing like that officer saying, have a good day, sir. And you want to say, you're not going to write me a ticket? You know, you're not going to give me what I deserve? That's good news. It kind of lifts your spirit. You, you drive away. Boy, I'm going I'm to be careful. And boy, this is good, you know. This is a good day. God's granted favor on me. I didn't get the ticket that I deserved. Well, let's turn our hearts to God's Word in Romans chapter 1. And I just want to read for us verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to look more specifically at verses 2 through 4. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant, and we looked at this last week, it means a slave, of Christ Jesus. He was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, according to his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to look at here this morning is within those seven verses, kind of one giant verse in the original text, but in that it basically contains the gospel. It not only is that, it's basically an outline of the whole book of Romans. It's like Paul's writing this thing and his thoughts just pour out of his, out of his mind so fast he just kind of writes down a, a, a brief version of what this whole letter is about. God's able to do that. He's able to summarize and emphasize things in a very succinct way. You think of the law, the Ten Commandments. There's only 297 words that make all those Ten Commandments up. Very succinct. And here, Paul, God through Paul, gives us a very succinct 
kind of picture of what the gospel was all about. And it starts off there in verse 1, and we're not going to go over this because we already have, but verse 1, it talks about the preacher of the good news. Who is it? Paul. He's a servant. He's an apostle. He's set apart by Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, he says, which he promised. This is what we want to look at today, the promise of the good news. See, if, if there was no promise in the good news, it really wouldn't be good news. If the doctor comes to you and says, well, you know what, bad news is you got this disease. The good news is you're going to die. Well, that's not good news. There's no promise in that. But if he said the good news is there's a cure, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. That would be good news. He's promising you something. It says here, the gospel which he had promised God had promised before by his, prof- by his prophets. What Paul is saying here, very simply, is that, you know what? This good news is not new news. <laughs> it's not new news. This isn't something I came up with. No, this is the good news of God. This is something that's been around. God promised it. Beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, there was a lot of folks in Jesus' time that were pointing to Jesus and saying, you know what? Who does this guy think he is? He's coming up and he's saying all these new things. Everything is new. He's trying to create a new religion. He's trying to create a new following after himself. And the world religions of Jesus' day, mainly the, the Pharisees, They took issue with this. They looked at Jesus, this Galilean, and said, who do you think you are marching into our territory and claiming to be the Messiah? you got to be kidding me. And these people who are following you? Fishermen. They're not like us. We're Pharisees. We're religious people. See, he denied the Pharisees' so-called devotion Because of its hypocrisy. The Pharisees were those who would dress up in their robes and go out on the corner and clasp their hands and deep in prayer so everybody could see them. The Pharisees were the ones who made sure everybody saw what they put in the offering. The Pharisees were the ones who went to the meetings just to be seen by other people. Many in Jesus' time were saying, Is what Jesus teaching us new truth? Is he really speaking for God? Because he's not really saying what we've been taught through the Pharisees. What's going on here? As a matter of fact, a lot of times he says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? Look over in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus had a lot of confrontations with the Pharisees, with the religious people of his day. And this was one of them. Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. Look at what he says. You have heard. This is how he always started off his conversations. You've heard. Heard it from who? From the Pharisees. He's speaking to the people and he's saying, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be 
liable to judgment. But look at verse 22. But I say to you, whoa, wait a minute. This is something new. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying, you've heard it said. Well, where did they hear it said? See, the Pharisees, the Jews were given stewardship of the word of God. They were to take the word of God and to spread it. Well, they didn't do that. They took the Word of God and they kind of hoarded it to themselves. And when they really began to understand what the Word of God said, they realized there's no way anybody could keep all these rules and regulations, so let's make up some that we can keep. And they came up with kind of an oral tradition. That's where all of a lot of the ridiculous rules and regulations of Judaism come from. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the religious teachers who couldn't deal with what the Bible really said, so they had to come up with something they could follow. So on the Sabbath, it's unlawful to work, so what does that mean? Well, you can't pick up a stick if it's so big and carry it so far. Ridiculous. The Word of God doesn't say that. They came up with this, because then they, as religious leaders, could use that to kind of browbeat the people into submission under them. And so when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said of old, he was saying, you know what? Your tradition teaches you this. I was raised in a church where tradition basically taught me, you know what? You come to church, you come to Mass on Sunday, and do whatever you want the rest of the week. It doesn't matter as long as you go to confession. And tradition said that you had to go to the church and you enter into this little room and lift up this little screen and you kneel down. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. You go through this rigmarole. Then the priest tells you, well, okay, here's what you have to do. Go say five Hail Marys and four Our Fathers, and you're good to go. Okay, and you leave the little box, and you go out, and you kneel down, and you pray, or at least act like you're praying, and rip through these prayers, because you're in a hurry. You want to get out of there. And you're good to go. That's what tradition taught me. And I believed that till I was 19 years of age. <laughs> Until someone said, what do you do about the verse that says none are good, that everybody has sinned? When somebody first told me that I needed to become a Christian, I said, are you out of your mind? I'm Catholic. I'm a Catholic. Don't tell me I need to become a Christian. And then God took his word and he began to show me, wait a minute, it's not about what church you go to. It's not about what you call yourself. That has nothing to do with the issue of sin in your life. That has nothing to do with the idea that you owe a debt that you cannot pay and that Christ paid a debt that he didn't know and that he wants to know you. He died for you. He desires to, to reconcile you to the Father. That was good news. In verse 17 of Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Think that I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but I've come to what? Fulfill it. See, the idea that you have 
the Old Testament and then you have Jesus and they're, they're inseparable. No. People in the Old Testament didn't get saved by doing anything. They got saved by faith. Just like we get saved by faith. They were looking forward to the cross. We look back. It's the same idea. And the people accused Jesus of coming up with some kind of a new religious following or a new teaching. And that just wasn't true. The religious leaders of Jesus' time perverted the law of God so much that Jesus declared in verse 20 of Matthew 5, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. But they also attacked Paul. Not just Jesus, they attacked Paul. When he came and he began to preach the gospel, they were against him as well. And so what he says back to Romans 1 is, hey, don't think I came up with this deal on my own. That's why he says, no, he's an apostle of God. He's set apart. It's not something that he just kind of came up with randomly. And so when he says in verse 2, God promised this gospel. I'm set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God. And it's him that promised it. And he did so beforehand. How did he promise this? Over in Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us, Hebrews chapter 1, the Old Testament is completely consistent with the New Testament. The good news is old. It's not new. It's not the new good news. No, this, this news has been around for a while. When Christ preached the good news of the kingdom, people wondered if it was something just out of this world, revolutionary. But it wasn't. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, God who at different times and in different manners spoke in times past to who? Unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us through who? By his Son, it says, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's. See, the writer basically is saying that God spoke by the prophets in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he spoke through his Son. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 tells us the means. It says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them did signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. See, the prophets themselves realized their message was incomplete. They were missing something. They didn't know what it was. And so the new covenant through Christ came, the good news of Christ, and that clarified what the Old Testament prophets had promised. I mean, think about it. In the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice a lamb, 
what did that point to? That, that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. That pointed to Jesus Christ. That had no power to forgive sin. The Old Testament spoke of the time when the Messiah would come. And he did come. And the people that he came for killed him. They denied that he had any correlation to their law or their tradition. See, that is why Paul is saying here, the gospel is good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's exactly what was promised before. This isn't something new. And he says there in verse 2 that it was through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This isn't something Paul just dreamt up because he had a, a, you know, a bad tamale or something the day before. Couldn't sleep. Ah, I think I'll write some things down. No, this is something that's from God. The Old Testament was commonly known as the Law and the Prophets. The Jewish people divided the Old Testament into those two categories. But basically the phrase, the prophets, includes everything in the Old Testament. That's the idea. And the gospel was promised through the Holy Scripture. What does that signify? That word holy means that it's something that's not of human origin. The reason spoke of Scripture in this way was to emphasize its, its origin. That's why Paul spoke this way. The Scriptures we hold in our hands today are holy. It's the Holy Bible, if it says it on the front of yours. That's what that word means. That it's set apart from everything else. That it's divine. That it's unique. That it's righteous. That it's godly. Sometimes people ask, well, how do you know the Bible's inspired? One good reason is because God says it is. I mean, that goes on good authority right there. John 5, 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they which testify of me. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, speaking to his disciples there, in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. He was teaching about himself from the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, the Old Testament is filled with the good news of the gospel. This isn't something new. It's a promise. It's a promise of God's good news. It's not of human origin. It's of divine origin. Romans chapter 7, verse 12 says, The law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. See, one thing that you have to have as a baseline if you're going to understand anything about Christ or about God or about his holy word is that God's truth is pure. God's truth is holy. God's truth is good. It's just. And when you read about the character and the nature of God found in the pages of this book, 
it helps put life in perspective. 2 Peter 1.20 says, No prophecy of Scripture is, any, is of any private interpretation. It says, For those prophecies came not at any time by the will of what? Man. These guys just didn't sit down and say, Yeah, I think I'll write a letter to the Romans. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. See if I can get this in this Bible everybody's coming up with. That's not what Paul was doing. He was moved by the Holy Spirit. It says, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by his spirit. This is an inspired text. This isn't like, you know, a novel that you read cover to cover. This is an inspired text. It's an inspired book. And I think that we would do well in reminding ourselves that on our bookshelves, a lot of us have 10, 20 copies of God's word. And sometimes we're lucky if we we break open one of them. The promise of God's news is there in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We not only see the promise, but in verse 3, we see the person. The person of the gospel. Who is the gospel about? It says there in verse 3, concerning his son. Concerning his son. He's speaking of none other than Jesus Christ. He, He names him there. Concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh. All the way at the end, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who is his name? Who is his son? It's the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ our Lord. We know this. We've studied this before. But the name Jesus, it's a name. There was other people named Jesus. Jesus the word in itself is not a holy word. There's a lot of people down south of the border that are named Jesus. The name Jesus means what? It means Savior. Matthew one twenty one says, Mary shall bring forth a son. She shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Why? God said, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's good news. We're captivated in our sin, and God says, you know what? I don't want that. I'm going to send an answer. I'm going to send a remedy. I'm going to send a solution. I'm going to send salvation. And his name is called Jesus. And his title is Christ. That's not his last name. It's not Jesus Christ. (laughs) Mr. Christ, no. Christ is a title. It means anointed one. Messiah. Jesus the Christ has been anointed by God, the the Word of God says, as king and priest. That's important to understand. He is the chosen one, the anointed one. There's none other. You can't have, if if I say, you're chosen, wait, you're chosen too. (laughs) Well, wait a minute, who's chosen? Who are you going to pick to be on your team? You or you? I can't pick both of you, I've got to pick one of you. Remember in gym class when they used to have you line up against the wall? Then they'd have the two rather athletic jocks get out there and they were able to pick their own teams. And you'd sit there hoping you weren't last to get picked. Well, they'd They'd pick them one by one. Pick you and they go back and forth. 
The idea of an anointed one, one who is picked, one who is, is, is chosen, is that it's exclusive. There's not a bunch of Jesus Christ running around and you figure out which one you want to follow. No, that's not it. The Bible says that God clearly had one son. And his name was Jesus, and he was the Christ, the anointed one. And then his designated designation there, the Lord, it basically means sovereign ruler. It means someone who is over others in every way. Romans 9, 5 says, as, according, as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all. God blessed forever. Philippians 2.6, Paul said that this Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Colossians 2.9 says, in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. See, we have to remember, beloved, that his name encompasses so much. Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we also see his sonship. I mean, there's no question that Jesus Christ is God. There's no question that he is Lord. Yet he's also referred to as the Son of God. It says concerning his Son. Many have asked, how, how can Jesus be both God and the Son of God? That doesn't make any sense. Well, we have to first determine a couple things. What sense Jesus is the Son of God? When you stop and you look at scriptures, you're going to see an interesting thing. The term son was used by Paul and other New Testament writers to speak of Christ when? At his incarnation. At his incarnation. Jesus became a son in taking on the role of the Son of God at his incarnation. I mean, there's a lot of different theologians that debate this, whether Christ has been the Son of God in all of eternity, or is he just the Son of God when he came down to earth? One thing is for sure, Christ is and always has been the second member of the Trinity, But he only became a son in his incarnation. See, when you think of the word son, stop and think of it this way. What do you think of? You think of someone who's submissive, someone who's obedient, someone who's there to honor that person's father. That is the sense in which Jesus is a son. You also notice, if you study the scriptures... Nowhere in Scripture does it say that Jesus has eternally and forever been the Son. It doesn't say that. In the Old Testament, he's called the angel of Jehovah. When he came to earth, he functioned as an angelic being. But that doesn't mean that he's eternally an angelic being. See, just because he took on the role of the Son in his incarnation doesn't mean that he had been eternally functioning as the son to the father. It's important to understand this. See, the term son, from what Scripture says, refers only to Christ's incarnation. 
That's why in verse 3 there, it says, concerning the Son who was descended from heaven according to the flesh. Some translations read, who was made, in verse 3 there. It's the Greek word ginomai. could also be translated, who became. Who became the Son of God. And it speaks of a transition from one state to another. And the point is this, Jesus did not come into existence when he was born. We know that, right? He's always existed. He's eternal, or he wouldn't be God. But in the incarnation, he simply took on the role of a son. That is why the text doesn't say that he was made or created at his incarnation. It says, no, that he he became the Son of God. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He made the transition from his holy, lofty position with God to a humiliating position of dwelling with sinful men as a man himself here on this earth, and he took on the role of the Son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament, and he's quoting out of Psalm 2-7. And it says this in Psalm 2-7, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. See, that verse explains that there was a day in which the second person of the Trinity Assume the role of a son. The rest of the verse says, I will be a father, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It doesn't say he is a, I am a father to him, and he is a son to me. No, it says, future tense, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And it indicates a time and space here on earth When God will act as a father and the second person of the Trinity will take on the role of his son. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14, God says this to David about the Messiah. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. The Old Testament over and over again declares that God will one day have a son. Jesus was always God. And has eternally existed as God. But he took on the incarnational title of son when he came down to earth. That's why in Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 8, Paul said about Christ, he says, Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but what? Made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a slave, of a servant who was made in the likeness of men and being found in, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, there was not a father-son relationship among the Trinity in all eternity, but complete equality. At the incarnation, Jesus took on the role of a servant as his father's son. That's why when you read verses like in John 17, John 17, verse 4, Jesus says this, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. 
Now that cannot refer to Christ's work in sustaining creation. Because he will never cease from that. Hebrews 1.3 Well, what work did he finish? The work of the cross and his role as the Son. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14, it says, was made flesh and dwelt among us. See, verse 1 there in John describes his exalted, eternal state. And verse 14 in John 1 describes his humble, human nature as the Son. But we also see here his birth. The phrase, it says they're the seed of David according to the flesh. The seed of David according to the flesh. It emphasizes his virgin birth of Christ. His mother Mary was in the line of David, and as was, as was Joseph, and he had to be born into the family of David to be the true Messiah. Uh, The phrase talks about Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, coming to earth as a man. I mean, that's part of the good news. That's, That's part of the good news we're talking about here this morning. The fact that Jesus became a man. That he was born into a family, like every other man. He was flesh, he was blood. He was born of a virgin. Nevertheless, he was still born. And this is the time he became a son. In in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is what? Who is Christ the Lord. He became a son. I mean, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Whether Christ being... A son eternally or becoming one at his incarnation. I think it's just a matter of what the word of God says. And it gives us a clear picture, a clearer picture of of what he gave up to become the son. A different role. All of a sudden he was in submission to his father. Well, Jesus also, when he came down, it allows him to sympathize with us. It allows him to sympathize with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, the scriptures tell us very clearly that, that Christ is, is a Savior who understands us. He identifies with us. It says in verse 14 of Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest, who, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And because of that, it says, verse 16, Let us then draw draw with confidence near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Jesus understands our plight. He understands what we're going through. Why? Because he became a man. And because he became a man, he can sympathize with us. 
He understands what it means to be hungry. He understands what it means to sweat. He understands what it means to have his heart broken. He understands all those things and more. And it also says that he was born of the house of David. He just wasn't any man. It says that he was of the seed of David in verse 3. Jesus was born into the right family. He had to be born into the right family to be the Messiah. He had to be born into this family to fall in line with God's eternal plan to rule and redeem the world. If he hadn't been the son of David, he couldn't have been the Messiah that the Old Testament proclaimed him to be. In Luke 1, a whole bunch of verses that speak of Christ as being the son of David. Verse 27, 32, 33, 69. See, God became a man to sympathize with man and to bear the sins of man. And Christ is the right man because he descended from the throne of David. And he has the right to rule, to reign, to redeem the creation. There's a lot of people that just deny that Jesus ever even existed. Even as a historical figure. It's kind of ridiculous, but they do. I just want to read one quote from Josephus, a church historian. He wrote around A.D. 90. It's about the time John wrote Revelation. He said this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. If it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. If Christ wasn't real, what are we doing here? Why would we even be here? This isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. And we know it to be real because at the end of verse 4, it tells us why. It says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? By his resurrection from the dead. See, that's what sets Christ apart. That's what sets him apart as the the one and only true God. That he rose from the dead. You can go visit the graves of all these other religious leaders and they'll be there. Not Jesus. I mean, if someone came along and and made the claim to be the Messiah and and claimed all this stuff that he was going to rise on the third day, and then it never happened. Don't you think people would kind of figure out this is a shell game, this is something that's not real? But here we are, thousands of years later, gathered in this little church, clinging on to the Bible, saying that, you know what, this is real. It's changed my life. This isn't a story that that is just told and and passed down from age to age. 
Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power. That word declared is an interesting word. Our English word, we get the word horizon from it. And it means that, you know what, you can basically see there's a boundary there between the earth and the sky. When you go out to the coast and you see the the sun kind of sink down into the horizon, there's a boundary there. It refers to that kind of that, that boundary line between earth and sky. And Paul is saying, you know what, some have questioned the veracity of Christ being who he said he was. The one that separates him, the boundary line that separates him from all others, is the clear demonstration that he rose from the dead, that he's resurrected. I mean, that's the good news of our gospel, beloved. And that is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord, he says at the end there. I mean, aren't you glad that the the, the story of Christ ends with the resurrection? I mean, think if we were just left to, to wonder. Thomas Jefferson didn't believe in a lot of supernatural things, and so in the Jefferson Bible, the last statement... He edited the Bible down, (laughs) made his own Bible. And the last statement in his Bible says, There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Nothing about the resurrection. He didn't want to hear about it. But you know what? That's not where the good news ends. Because it wouldn't be good news if it ended there. Thank God the Bible ends with the fact that he is risen. He's coming back for his children. See, the central message, beloved, of Christianity is Jesus Christ. From eternity, he has been the second person of the Trinity. He assumed the role of the Son of God at his incarnation. And Jesus became a man to experience our humanness and to sympathize with us as our high priest. And not only did Jesus experience human birth and human life, but also human death. And a cruel death, a death on a cross. I guess the question I have for you this morning is, do you believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is? Do you believe that he had a miraculous virgin birth? Do you believe that he lived a sinless life? Do you believe that he died and he rose again for man's sin? I want to ask you this morning, if you've never made a commitment to Christ, now's the time. Admit your sinfulness. Admit you're in chains. Admit you're in need of a Savior. And ask God to forgive you of your sin. That's a prayer that he will truly answer based on the promises of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our word this morning. Thank you that, Lord, your, your word is good news to our hearts. Father, that there's no way that we could ever find a way to save ourselves. It would be impossible because there's never enough good that we could do that you would look down upon it and say, you've done enough. Lord, we know that what sets Christianity, our faith, apart from all other world religions, every world religion is based on one word. It's a simple word. It's just two letters. D-O, what you do, is what gets you credit with their gods. If you go to church, if you say your prayers, if you 
help the homeless, if you do this, if you do that. All those things are good things to do. But when you're doing them in order to get a favor from God, God says they're nothing but filthy rags. What sets our religion apart, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, is not only the, the fact that it's based on a relationship, not a religion, but the fact that it's, it's based on one word, a four-letter word, D-O-N-E, what was done on our behalf through Christ. That's what we put our faith and trust. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust to see that we can do more better things. Hopefully God will like us more if we come to church more or we pray more or we give more of our money away. Maybe God will like us more. It doesn't work that way. The Bible very clearly says that we're saved by faith. It's not of ourselves. We're saved through grace. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So that one day we won't stand in heaven and boast and say, well, I'm here because I did this or I did that. There'll be no boasting in heaven. We will all recognize that we needed a Savior and that Jesus was the only Savior that we could have. And because we were desperate in our sin, we cried out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Help me to understand this gospel. Help me to understand this good news. Help my unbelief, Lord. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that he will answer today. Help us to take this message to the lost and dying world in which we live. Help us not to grow callous and cold, but Lord, help our hearts to break every time we see someone who is outside of the bounds of Christ, outside of the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ, who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray that we would see their eternal destiny as one being in hell and that we have a life raft for them. We have a Savior that can save them from such a horrible place. We ask you to bless our day. Pray that you'd bless our fellowship after the service here this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.